Hi everybody, this is Roy. Welcome to another Prog Report podcast interview. Before we get started, just a reminder to follow the Prog Report on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also check out the podcast on all our podcast networks, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for special episodes. On this episode, we talk to none other than founding member and guitarist of Marillion, Steve Rothery. The band are back with their brand new album, An Hour Before It's Dark, which comes out on March 4th. Prog Nick and I spoke to Steve about the new album and a lot more, which you can also see on YouTube. So please welcome Steve Rothery. Hi, Steve. Pleasure to, uh, pleasure to finally meet you, man. We haven't uh, had the pleasure uh, to talk to you on, on the show. Uh, we've we've had Mark on recently, Pete a, a few times, but uh, right. great oh. to great to have you on. Great to be I, on. I've I've met you once before, Steve, but you wouldn't remember. Ring my ring my uh, uh, remind me. Cruise to the edge. Cruise oh, to the right. edge. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and also and also at the 2015 Marillion weekend uh, in Wolverhampton. Oh right. Oh. Uh, yeah, so uh, actually, Nick is in uh, South Africa. I'm over in the U.S. and uh, okay, we uh, so we're fully international, and and you are uh, over in uh, in London, uh, in Buckinghamshire, um, yeah, north of London, northwest of London, about sixty miles. Nice, great. Uh, well, look, we're really excited to talk about the new record. Uh, an hour before it's dark comes out on March fourth. Um, had a chance to listen to it a few times. Fantastic record. Thank you. Um, you know, a little bit different than fear. I want to talk about that a little bit and, uh, and a bunch of other things. Um, the, the first thing I want to touch on is the long delay, right? So we were, lo- I was looking at the history of the, of the band and the different, the time difference between albums coming out. And it's typically been about two, three years. This is really, I think your longest break. So, so what's, what was the well, cause um, of that? A two year pandemic will, will slow things <laughs> down to say the least. Yeah, um, indeed. And, uh, you know, when, when you release an album, you tend to tour it. And then we have the Marillion weekends uh, around the world every two years, which takes about six months of the year uh, in three months for rehearsal and probably around about three months for the performances in the different countries. Um, and then we did the uh, Friends from the Orchestra album with the string players. Um, so we recorded that and we toured that. Um, and we just kind of got to the end of that, the end of 2019, um, and we made a start on writing what would become become this album when everything went to hell. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, so were you in the process of maybe working on the album? It would have been out sooner. If, if not for COVID oh, or? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there were several months when we couldn't work together at all. There was a, a few months when I wasn't working with a band because I was working at home and, and shielding. So it probably it cost us at least six months, uh, if not more. Uh, but then again, you know, this album could only have been written and, and recorded during a pandemic. So it is very much a, a product of its time. Uh, at this moment in history, really. So in terms of, you know, the themes and and I suppose the contrast between maybe some of the bleakness of some of the lyrics, uh, but the kind of uplifting aspect of a lot of the music as well. Um, it's all kind of part and parcel of, of, of us all living through uh, the pandemic, really. Yeah. Yeah. H was, was on record saying that he didn't really want to write about the pandemic, but I guess... As as the lyrics K 
came out of him it, it became it became a necessity i suppose absolutely yes yeah you, when you're living through something like that it has to come out in, in your work um we're going to be releasing a, a trailer for the uh, epk for the album i think later on to tonight or maybe tomorrow and he talked in that he talks about that about the uh you know, not really wanting to write about the pandemic, but then you don't have no choice because it's it's like what it's what you're living through, really. Uh, the same with the, the whole um, uh, climate change crisis. You know, the things that you're experiencing and 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 you're subject to and uh, has to come out somehow. Yeah. Do, do do you do you ever ad- advise HS to his lyrics? Um, what's the process when it comes to lyric writing? Um, well, the thing is, when Steve first joined the band, we were work, working with John Helmer a lot. You know, he'd written a lot of the lyrics um, that finished up on um, Season's End and various lyrics over subsequent albums. But really, for quite a long time, Steve's been the, the only lyricist. Um, and, you know, we won't do a song if, it, if, it, if, it, if it's a, a lyrical content that we weren't comfortable with, it wouldn't evolve into a, a Marillion song. You know, it would be something on his solo album. But um, Steve has a very balanced worldview and is, you know, is very perceptive and is very good at uh, summarizing, you know, the, the feelings that maybe a lot of people would have in this situation. Um, and I think he's done a, a brilliant job. Um, I mean, the response to Murder Machines, which was released today, and the video uh, has been outstanding. Um, you know, we had, uh, I think Lucy had a, a message from from someone um, and um, who worked in the healthcare and, and uh, got COVID in the early days and very nearly died and, and gave it to their, their partner. And, you know, so totally relating to, to to the words and the the sentiments that he's expressed in that song. Yeah. The, well, one of the things that you guys are always able to do with your albums, I want to go back to Fear a little bit, which was also written about a time about uh, dark politics and, and all the gloom of that period. Um, and that album was, was a really big success for you guys commercially, critically. Um, yeah. You know, does the success of an album or the direction of a previous album like that influence this one and and how you want to go with it? It doesn't influence its direction. What it did do was um, influence our ambition for it in terms of, you know, we're all getting older. We're all in our 60s, some of us in our mid-60s, and we're not going to make that many more records in our career. So we thought it was crucial that whatever we did, we made it as good as possible. And and yeah, fear was in a way the yardstick by which, it, which we had to measure it. So when well, we thought if this if these songs sound good enough to have been on the fear album, then we know we're, we're in the right area. So that was kind of how we measured it. Yeah. You mentioned something before about the how the pandemic delayed you guys by months. And it actually, it, it didn't occur to me, but you guys have a history of uh, writing through jamming a lot, right? That's how you come up with a lot of the ideas. So where yeah, some bands may have been able to just use the time to write at home and send files, I imagine for you guys it was more mm-hmm. critical, no, we have to wait until we're in the room because that's the process. Is that what happened? 
Um, yeah, I mean, we haven't always written by jamming, but really for the last 15 years or so, probably, it's a pr primary, the primary way that we would we, we would construct the songs just because it stops us arguing. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, there's just something very special when the five of us are together. Uh, I mean, they did some work for, for a, a month or two without me, but they weren't really very happy with how it was coming together because I think there's some something that only happens when all five of us are there. Like, um, I tend to throw in lots of ideas one after the other. If I'm kind of feeling it, um, I'll come up with loads of little melodies and, and, and uh, arpeggios and, uh, and little kind of chimey melodic moments, which I think can can really help lift some of, this, some of the moments in the songs. And uh, I think, you know, there was that real feeling of when all five of us could get back together again, that, yeah, this is this is what it's about, this is what we need and what we've missed. And, um, yeah, it's just, uh, I think that for me, there was a, a great joy in being able to play together again. And, and, and you guys, you guys, of course, famously got together at Real World Studios, which yes. get a Real Studio, which, which is always an experience, I'm sure. Oh, it's amazing. Again, there's some great footage from that in, in this uh, EPK that's coming out later. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a magical place. Um, we've, we've been there for the last few records and I, I did some of my solo album down there. And it's just like anywhere else in the world. It's, it's an amazing studio in a great location, completely bonkers. You know, you're all, you're recording and performing in the one room, this giant uh, live come control room. Um, but great acoustic, um, and it, it really helps focus you, you think, uh, and focus your focuses your uh, creativity. So yeah, I think we're as long as we can afford to, we'll we'll carry on going back there. So Steve, there's, there there seem to be four uh, themes and another three songs on on the album, four suites, let's call them with, with themes. But the press release says that the title and the main theme could be interpreted. To, to be one of three things or two of three things or all three things. The last hour of a child's playtime before being called inside by his mom, uh, the fight against time in respect of climate change, which is, which, which is a very wide issue, uh, or the last minutes of a person's life. Um, mm. So w w without, without giving it away, what's your filter? What's your, your personal interpretation? Um. Yeah, not necessarily the last person's of, uh, of a person's life, but but that feeling of, you know, almost like being in the end days, you know, it's just like um, when things are at their worst with the pandemic, you know, it it it, um, it transformed our world. You know, I, I'm used to touring the world. I mean, 2019, I did so many things. Um, and then that 2020, everything stops. You know, it's just like, you don't everything you took for granted in terms of international travel and 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 just in, interaction with with people um all stops so it, it did it did feel like this like such a an abrupt um change so yeah for me it, that's kind of what it represents that you know the the last hour before everything goes to hell <laughs> uh one of the things that i i like about the record as well is while the lyrics are are dark uh, about uh, heavy subject matter, actually musically, I think it's very up up tempo, up upbeat yes. in times. Yeah, it's uh, and I like that kind of contrast. 
Um, yeah. You know, where do you guys decide on that in, in terms of um, maybe this is this is too aggressive for this lyric or maybe this should be a little faster, slower? How does that work for you guys? Because it, it really varies from album to album with you guys. Um, well, sometimes as we jam in through the sections, there aren't any lyrics. You, you're trying to make something work in, in terms of music. Then as, as you get maybe fragments of lyrics, you, you might, you know, get a bit of a picture that Steve's trying to portray, but it's, it's still, it's not dictating the direction of the music. The music has to have its own reason for existence, really. Um, and like I say, for me, a lot of what I did on the album was was inspired by just that feeling of uh, exuberance of being able to do this again, be able to express these emotions in such a way, um, and 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 a joy in in to be able to yeah, do something that's been your life's work really again. I, I just wanted to to congratulate you on the crow and the nightingale. Particularly, I mean, what a what a what a yeah. magnificent song with a wonderful gu- guitar solo. I, I mean, yeah. it's my really, yeah, yes, yeah, mine, mine, mine too. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, I think it's it's a, a yeah a jewel of a song, and and the first time. Cause the thing is as well, you know, when when you're building up the pictures for these tracks, it's only when you get to the very end and the mix stage that you hear the finished thing that you get an idea of its power because. When we were down at Real World, we that was only in conversations with Tim, who films our documentaries and, and live shows, that he'd worked with this band called Bring Me the Horizon at the Royal Albert Hall, and they'd used this choir. And he said, "Oh, you should you should check them out." And it was only after that that we got them on board. Um, and That's the you know, choir incredible, noir. yeah, exactly, the incredible job they did in Crow Nightingale and Care as well, just just kind of elevating it. And adding a different kind of level of, of emotion and and and, and energy, um, which is just yeah, just in, insane really for me. You know, to listen to our work and and to feel moved by it in such a way, it's, it's quite a strange sensation. Uh, but yeah, no, they they uh, did they did an incredible job. Well, uh, I, I wondered if I could digress a little bit, Stephen, and ask you a, a, a question which is not necessarily related to the album. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Marillion, have have been since the first album. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a great follower of the music, but I'm also a student of the music industry and the music business, and I, I, I'm particularly interested in in how Marillion have have approached the industry. I mean, for example, the Marillion weekends. Uh, I mean, it's just <laughs> one of the many T-shirts that I've collected there. Um, they're a wonderful innovation. You guys basically invented crowdfunding um, in the music industry, which is really momentous. Um, the couch convention. You've even got a very innovative approach to music piracy where, 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 where instead of um, going after people who try to pirate your music, you 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 give them a link to a user friendly site where they can access the music. Those those types of 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 very innovative approaches to the industry. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, we uh, became aware of the power of the internet uh, after the uh, crowdfunding campaign for the '97 tour, where uh, we yeah, we told our American fan base we couldn't afford to tour the states because every time we came over, we lost. Fifty or sixty thousand dollars. So 
one of the American fans had had the idea of, of creating a tour fund. And this was before the World Wide Web. So this was just like a, a bulletin board for freaks. Um, and people started raising money to try and enable us to come and tour in the States. I think the biggest single donation was from an English guy, which kind of, kind of gave you the sense of like a global community of, of, of fans. Um, and anyway, they raised like $70,000 and we did a, a US tour. Um, and it was after that when we'd finished our deal with, um, yeah, we had eight albums with EMI and three albums with an independent. We were there looking and trying to decide what we should do. We, we could sign another deal with the independent, but with every release, we'd seen our, our, our sales drop. Um, and we had the idea of, of sending it direct to our base, going to them and saying, would you be willing to pre-order this album? Um, you're not going to get it for a year, um, but if would you be interested and i think 13 14 000 of them said yes so that enabled us to um bring in dave megan again as a producer um make the anorak phobia album license it back to emi and for the first time kind of turn a corner in terms of sales and profile um and set the blueprint um for you know, not too much to say it's for the survival of, a, of of certain artists within the industry, you know, finding a different way of doing it rather than going cap in hand to the to a record label and, and uh, signing your life away and getting peanuts in terms of royalties. You know, we, we, we owned the record. We, we could do what we wanted with it. And, and we kind of followed that model really ever since then. Um, we'll work with Adel in, in Germany, who do do a great job in the uh, promotion and distribution of the music. And um, combination of, of the pre-order campaigns for each album and the Marillion Weekends are the two probably most important things in terms of financing the band and, and enabling us to to make music at this level. You know, because when you when you're making a record, it takes time, which equates to money, because you know everyone has to live. So if you have the budget, which is probably triple the budget you would get from a, even from a major label, then you can take your time to craft your, your, your music to its best possible conclusion. Really. It, it's a remarkable story, really, the, the success of the band in the, the, the last 10, 15 years with all of that. It's, it, it's really amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I think in some, some ways we're kind of as well known for, for that, for, for the crowdfunding and, and the use of, of uh, the Internet as we are for the music, which is uh, ironic in a way. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, well, ironically, maybe one of the, the next album can be about the music industry. <laughs> yes, it'll do full circle. It'll be real yeah. dark. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, ironically, with that said, you have been going back and releasing uh, reissues of early records, um, and that's been going really well and getting yes. praise for the you know the improvements sonically that you're able to do and all the things you can add to them, and people certainly love those things. Um, you know, talk about what that's been like revisiting the old records so in depth and and working on them in that way. Uh, it's been very interesting, actually. We've we've uh, worked with some incredibly talented people, Annie and Avril, that have done a lot of the uh, the fish year releases, and uh, you know, and it's not just remixing the albums; it's finding the live performances from that time and, and mixing those. So you have it becomes like a very much like a historical document of that time in the band's career. Yeah. Um, so I think it's 
for anyone that's a real fan, it's, it's or a completist, you know, it's just that's the version of the album that you would want in an ideal world. Uh, I mean, I'm the same with some films, you know, I think I've got about five different versions of Blade Runner, <laughs> <laughs> you know, director's cuts and Blu-rays and, you know, right. but I think people people want the ultimate version of, of their favourite records, if at all yeah. possible. Um, so it's great that we can do that. Um, we've got a Holiday's Neen that's going to uh, come out, I think, later this year, which sounds phenomenal. It sounds so much better than the original release to me. Uh, so much more powerful and dynamic. So it's it's yeah, it's it's quite exciting to go back and 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 uh, revisit those records and and in a way improve them. Yeah, I mean, technology nowadays allows you to do so many different things, studio wise, to to improve the sound of a record that. I, I imagine, I mean, when you were recording those records back in the 80s, did you feel like you were unhappy with the sound or for that period, it was it was good? Um, I was unhappy with my guitar sound on a lot of uh, the first two albums. Um, you know, the early 80s, there was a fashion for very harsh sounds, both in terms of guitars and, and drum sounds as well. Very over-EQ'd. Um, but I think Andy did a great job of trying to bring back some of that warmth on the on the Fugazi uh, reissues. But there's a limit to how much you can do. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, 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 in a way, they're they're just a product of their time. Yeah, indeed. So, uh, Steve, you guys are are famous for choosing not to be pigeonholed into any category of of music. Would it be fair to say that the word prog doesn't even adequately describe who you are today? I mean, there's such a variation when, when you look back at albums like Misplaced Childhood and Clutching the yeah, Stores. Yeah, well, it's no. difficult to see because prog can mean so many different things to different people. I'm actually lecturing at the second international conference of progressive rock in Alicante in Spain next week. There's but, such a thing? That's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a big uh, classical music uh, conservatoire there. Um, but you see... For me, what progressive rock means is just music that doesn't have to conform. It doesn't have to conform to a traditional structure. It can blend multiple influences and create some kind of different hybrids of styles. Um, it's not necessarily commercial, but it can be commercial. It doesn't, it's, it's not a box. It shouldn't be a box that you put things in. It shouldn't be a big stick that you hit people on the head with. Um, but by the same to token, it shouldn't just represent bands that sound like they've been locked in their bedrooms the last 30 years just listening to Supper's Ready or Shine On Your Crazy Diamond. You know, there's there's a whole world out there. Um, so for me, progressive rock in its true sense is, is music that's adventurous, that doesn't have to conform, but can, can include virtually anything in terms of stylistic kind of content. Well, speak, speaking of David Gilmore, you, he, he's, he's been cited as one of your influences. And I, and I think it's fair to say that you and Gilmore are at the top of the heap of guitarists that, that play in that particular style. You, you're the two guys. Um, would that be fair to say? Tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of discovered music when I was 15. Uh, I decided when I was still at school that that's what I wanted to do with my life. So 
uh, kind of the certain subjects of school I was okay at maths and physics and English and art, but generally I wasn't really interested. So I left school at 16 and played the guitar for 10 hours a day. Um, I remember listening to um, Shannon, Your Crazy Diamond when Wish You Were Here first came out on a cassette player on the, on the beach at night under the stars and thinking, this is what I want to do with my life. There could be nothing better in the universe than to do this. Um, and so that was my dream, you know. Um, I joined my first band at 17. They all went off to college and, and university and, and I joined Marillion when I was 19 and uh, followed my dream. And uh, yeah, when I think back, I was incredibly young to be doing that, you know, but uh, it worked out eventually. <laughs> you know, within three years, we were signed to EMI and, and recording, so... Uh, but no, it's it, it's very odd when you kind of look back, and you know, getting in a band that gets signed is like winning the lottery. Um, getting to to have a career that lasts this long is like winning the lottery twice. So it's a, it's a very strange feeling, you know, literally a lifetime, forty three years since I joined. You know, it's uh, so yeah. But to go back, yeah, Gilmore is probably my my three main influences are Dave Gilmore. Andy Latimer from Camel and Steve Hackett. Um, and Steve Hackett's actually a really good friend of mine. Uh, and we, we've been doing some work uh, over the years. And at some point in the future, we'll, we'll release an album together. That's exciting. Wow. Uh, any plans uh, for the Steve Rothery band uh, to do anything, tour uh, again or? Yeah, we've got, we just, uh, I just released this Blu-ray from the Live in London, the Steve Rothery band, which is going down incredibly well, but that's, that's only available direct from the, from the, the Racket Club uh, website. Um, but we've got three shows over the Easter weekend in Europe, uh, two in the Netherlands and one in Germany. Uh, and I'll probably try and do a couple in the UK uh, in the summer, probably late July. Uh, and we will do another, I'll do another album with those guys as well. I'm still finishing off my um, space-themed instrumental album called uh, Ron Toulé. Uh, and I'm also doing some work with with Thorsten from Tangerine Dream, who I'm guesting with, uh, next month in London, well, for three shows around the UK. So um, I've always got a few things happening. I've always got a few plates spinning. So <laughs> I keep myself busy. It drives my wife crazy. <laughs> well, uh, again, I think this has been a pleasure to speak with you. Um, again, the, the new album, An Hour Before It's Dark, uh, comes out on March 4th from Marillion. Uh, an incredible band that's been doing it for 40 some odd years, which is unbelievable. Uh, we hope to see you on Cruise to the Edge. Uh, I don't know if you're if you are familiar, but I'm one of the co-hosts with uh, oh, John Kirkman on the ship. Oh, and, great. Um, so hopefully uh, we'll be able to see you there and get to, to talk in person for a bit. And Nick, are you coming? Uh, I'm not sure yet, Roy. Um, I'm hoping to put it back. <laughs> Nick's never missed the cruise. I, the I've never missed one yet. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm doing my best. It, it, it's, a, it's a long way from here, though. Yeah, I, I completely understand. All right. Well, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Okay. Be well. Cheers. Good to speak to you guys. You too. Bye. Bye, Steve. Thanks. Bye. Thanks to Steve for the interview. An hour before it's dark comes out on March 4th. So don't forget to check it out. Don't forget to follow us on progreport.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, podcast networks, and on YouTube for special episodes. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.